Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Tonight on The Readout. I said to him, are you out of your effing mind? Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. We now know why that White House lawyer told John Eastman to get a great effing lawyer and why Eastman then tried to jump on the last lifeboat asking for a pardon. It was all explained in great detail at today's blockbuster January 6th hearing. But we begin with a different January 6th. January 6th, 2001, which played out this way after the disputed results in Florida. Is the objection uh, in writing and signed by a member of the House and a senator? The objection is in writing, and I don't care that it is not, it is not signed by a member of the Senate. The, uh, the chair will advise that the rules do care. Now, we all remember what happened next. George W. Bush's election was certified by Al Gore, the vice president at the time, and Bush was inaugurated. His opponent, Vice President Al Gore, did not try to stop that from happening. No one suggested that Gore had any constitutional authority to do so, since, in fact, that was never a thing despite a history of multiple disputed American presidential elections, including the one which also hinged on disputed Florida results back in 1876, which led to the creation of the Electoral Count Act. During today's hearing, however, Gregory Jacob, who was lead counsel to Vice President Pence, was asked if he confronted Trump lawyer John Eastman with that fact and many other objections to Eastman's outre interpretation of the Electoral College Act, Electoral Count Act, And this is what he said. Back in 2000, you weren't jumping up and saying Al Gore had this authority to do that. You would not want Kamala Harris to be able to exercise that kind of authority in 2024 when I hope Republicans will win the election. And I know you hope that, too, John. And he said, absolutely. Al Gore did not have a basis to do it in 2000. Kamala Harris shouldn't be able to do it in 2024. But I think you should do it today. In fact, Eastman was pushing this theory, even as he himself acknowledged that it was unconstitutional and wouldn't hold up in court. Did Dr. Eastman admit in front of the president that his proposal would violate the Electoral Count Act? Mr. Eastman acknowledged that that was the case, um, that even what he viewed as the more politically palatable option would violate several provisions. But he thought that we could do so because, in his view, the Electoral Count Act was unconstitutional. Jacob also testified that Eastman acknowledged that if if his theory that Pence could delay certification of President Biden's victory made it to the Supreme Court, Trump would lose unanimously nine to nothing. The star of today's hearing, however, former federal judge and perennial Republican Supreme Court shortlister Michael Ludig, who advised Pence about his options, also made clear, along with Mr. Jacob, that Pence had no authority under any interpretation of the Constitution to do what Eastman proposed. 
there was no basis in the Constitution or laws of the United States at all for the theory espoused by Mr. Eastman at all. None. Our review of text, history, um, and frankly just common sense all confirmed the vice president's first instinct on that point. There is no uh, justifiable basis to conclude that the vice president has that kind of authority. In fact, Judge Ludig spelled out how adamantly he opposed the suggestion that Pence could overturn, to overturn the elections. That declaration of Donald Trump as the next president would have plunged America into what I believe would have been tantamount to a revolution within a constitutional crisis. For his part, John Eastman remained undeterred and later even spoke at the Ellipse on January 6th, only further inflaming the crowd with claims about a plot he, as we now know, admitted was illegal in private. And all we are demanding of Vice President Pence is this afternoon at one o'clock, he let the legislatures of the state look into this so we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. Taken together, today's hearing filled in the blanks of why White House lawyer Eric Hirschman advised Eastman to get a great effing lawyer, several of them, as committee member Pete Aguilar revealed yet another bombshell. Just a few days later, Dr. Eastman emailed Rudy Giuliani and requested that he be included on a list of potential recipients of a presidential pardon. Dr. Eastman's email stated, quote, I've decided that I should be on the pardon list if that is still in the works. After Trump declined to give Eastman that presidential pardon, Eastman pleaded the fifth repeatedly when deposed by the committee, 100 times to be exact. Joining me now, Olivia Troy, director of the Republican Accountability Project and a former aide, top aide to Vice President Mike Pence. Daniel Goldman, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and general counsel for the House Intelligence Committee during the first Trump impeachment. He's now running for Congress in New York. And Maya Wiley, President and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Thank you all for being here. I, I want to zero in on Mr. Eastman, um, because it seems to me, I'm going to go right down the center of my panel here to Mr. Goldman. It seems to me that not only was what he was proposing unconstitutional, he knew it was unconstitutional. Not only did it violate the law, I meaning the Electoral Count Act, he knew it violated that law. And he knew that in terms of precedent, it violated that, too, because he said Al Gore should not have had the right to do this. He thinks Kamala Harris should not have the right to do it. But, quote, we should go ahead and do this anyway. Your thoughts. Well, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the difference between just sort of violating the Electoral Count Act and knowingly conspiring with others to interfere with the lawful functioning of government is exactly what you and Greg Jacob said today, which is that 
He knew that what he was advocating for was illegal, yet he was doing it anyway. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can take the word of District Judge Carter out in L.A., who made a finding by preponderance of the evidence that Eastman may have committed that exact crime, conspiring to defraud and the, uh, to overturn the election. And who was his co-conspirator, according to Judge Carter? Donald Trump. So if John Eastman is taking the fifth, is asking for a pardon, because he clearly at that point recognized that he was in criminal hot water, uh, the only other people who were really integrally involved in pushing Eastman's theory were Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, and Donald Trump. It does seem at this point like what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is most of the rest of White House officials were behind the scenes pushing against this whole scheme, but that Eastman kept pushing forward. I mean, even to the point where he fully acknowledged that what he was doing was illegal, but he just wanted Vice President Pence to do it anyway. And, you know, let me just read for a second, Maya, from the 12th Amendment to the Constitution, because I thought that aside from everything else that we're learning, it's a fantastic civics lesson that Americans are getting by watching these hearings, because people don't necessarily know the minutia of what's in the Constitution. But one thing is pretty clear. If you do remember January 6, 2001, that the... The position of the vice president in that moment is ceremonial. It's purely ceremonial. It's like the Oscars. You know, the person reading the Oscars envelope doesn't determine who wins the Oscar. They're literally just reading it. And so is the vice president. And Mr. Pence went and asked people who would know. He asked people like Michael Ludig. He went and asked the former vice president, Dan Quayle. He went and asked people just to be sure. And his counsel asked. And they were told, no, you need to stick with this. The president of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate... And the House of Representatives open all the certificates and the votes then shall be counted, period. That's the job. And yet his persistence, Maya, is what's mind boggling here. Right up until the day of the insurrection, he himself gets on at the at the podium and starts still spouting this demand to Mike Pence. What do you make of all this? Look, I, I make of all this what was already largely in the public eye, but that these hearings are making crystal clear with additional new and powerful evidence, which is everybody, including those close to Donald Trump, appointed by Donald Trump, that Donald Trump chose to take before Senate confirmation, that he relied upon to defend him in impeachment, and brought into the White House Counsel's Office, these are his close supporters all saying the same thing behind closed doors, which is, no, this is insanity. This is crazy. A Judge Ludig, I mean, the thing about this is, this is a person with whom I know I personally would share very few things that we would agree upon. I can say that the Saving an American democracy requires us all to recognize what the boundaries are. That 12th Amendment is a clear, crystal clear boundary. And what we have seen, what it, what I make of it is those who seek power, like a John Eastman, like a Rudy Giuliani, and like a Donald Trump, are really saying we will ignore the Constitution of the United States if it serves us. And the reason this committee hearing, I hope, is getting the time and attention it deserves is because the true message here is no matter your political beliefs or your party, 
This is an existential crisis. If we believe lies because they are told repeatedly, including lies about what our Constitution tells us. I mean, Olivia, I'm going to go to you because you worked for Mike Pence. I mean, can you imagine what would have happened in 2001 had Vice President Gore simply said, no, um, I disagree with what the Supreme Court has said about the um, outcome in Florida, and I will simply declare myself to be the president. I mean, that is literally what was being asked of Mike Pence, to declare himself vice president again. But I want to have uh, our, our audience listen for a moment again to vice president's team, some of members of his team, reacting to Donald Trump, then releasing a statement on January 5th, lying about Mike Pence's beliefs and trying to say Mike Pence agreed with all of this. Take a look. We were shocked and disappointed uh, because whoever had written and put that statement out, it was categorically untrue. I was um, irritated and expressed uh, displeasure that a uh, statement could have gone out that misrepresented the vice president's viewpoint without consultation. Olivia, talk about the pressure that was on Mike Pence, who, again, was a partisan supporter of Donald Trump and the pressure that he and his staff and his team were, on, were under. Yeah, look to your point. He was an unwavering, loyal follower, right? He served the administration for four years, and you basically saw no daylight between him and Trump the entire time. Even, you know, as a frustrated staffer, sometimes I really wanted it to be there, but he was unwavering on it. And so I, I was, I have to say, uh, when I saw that statement go out initially, I was thinking to myself, like, this is definitely a false statement. It's not the first false statement that Donald Trump has put out, right? This is his, his, this is his usual modus operandi is what I will say about Donald Trump and who he is. And so that just shows the intimidation because that was the intent of that statement. That statement was meant to publicly intimidate the Pence team and Mike Pence himself. And it was also, let's be honest, meant to radicalize Trump supporters and followers to continue to fuel and fan the flames that were going to lead up to what we saw develop on January 6th. And we know that from the Washington Post reporting a few days before that, on January 3rd, Trump is literally telling the people in his office, don't tell Mike Pence anything. He's isolating the vice president, Olivia, and saying we're going to pressure him and isolate him and then make him the hate object of that growing and increasingly angry crowd on the 6th. Yeah, so it's a, it's a secret coup going on, right, that they're planning to overturn a free and fair election. And then there's this kind of secret type of plot against his own vice president. And look, you may disagree with Mike Pence's politics uh, and his uh, ideology, political ideology, but we should never, no matter what party you belong to, be okay with a scenario where the vice, where the president of the United States is plotting to figure out how to navigate into getting his own vice president to commit treason with them. Mike Pence is a lot of things, but he's certainly not a traitor to our country. And Dan, you know, the, the Justice Department has said they're quite interested. They would like to see the transcripts of all of these interviews. Sh shouldn't they already be interviewing these same people? What do you make of the fact that they're saying they would like these transcripts? Well, I don't think there's any question that the Department of Justice is woefully behind the select committee. They clearly made a decision at the outset that they were not going to be able to stay ahead of Congress as the Department of Justice prefers to do. And so they just let them go and do their thing. 
Um, I do think, though, that, yes, of course, they'll be able to get their own interviews and they will have to interview everyone themselves. But it really cuts to the chase if you're able to go through current testimony or recent testimony on the same topic of, you know, a thousand people. And my suspicion and what I hope will happen is that some of the staff members on the January 6th committee, after these hearings are over, will guide the members of the Department of Justice through the transcripts and indicate to them which transcripts may be very valuable and which ones are not so valuable. Because remember, so many of the staff members on the January 6th committee are former uh, federal prosecutors. Mm -hmm. So they certainly know how to build a criminal case. uh, And it would short circuit a lot of work for the Department of Justice if they could get some guidance from the committee staff. Oh, absolutely. Oh, if I were John Eastman right now, I'd be sweaty (laughs) because today I felt they built a pretty rock solid case that he knew that he was fomenting crimes and then tried to get on that pardon boat. Um, Okay, my guests are all going to stick with me. And up next. I'm hearing reports that Pence caved. I'm telling you, if Pence caved, we're going to drag mother through the streets. You politicians are going to get drugged through the streets. The threat to the life of Vice President Pence, caused by his boss, Donald Trump. Stay with us. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Today's hearing provided the most detailed account that we've seen so far of what former Vice President Pence endured on January 6th. Let me just paint you a picture of his day. That morning, Donald Trump, in a last-ditch effort to overturn the election results and remain president, called the vice president to tell him to have, quote, extreme courage. On that call, former Pence legal counsel Greg Jacob testified that he overheard Trump calling Pence a wimp. And Ivanka, Trump's chief of staff, said Trump called Pence the P-word. After that call, Pence left for the Capitol, and Trump went to deliver a speech at the Ellipse, a speech that had zero mentions of Pence in the draft remarks. But according to the committee... Here's what Trump wound up saying that day. I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a a sad day for our country. Because you're sworn to uphold our Constitution. Those remarks cranked up the MAGA crowd's anger against Pence. And that anger grew after Trump tweeted that Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. Trump did this even after being informed that there was a violent mob attacking the Capitol. The committee noted that the angry crowd surged directly after that tweet. 
Pence was escorted to a secure location. Congressman Aguilar pointing out that at one point, the insurrectionists were only 40 feet away from the vice president. In fact, an informant told the FBI that the Proud Boys would have killed Pence if they'd caught him. In newly released photos, we see that Vice President Pence was moved to a loading dock where the Secret Service directed him to get into a car. But he refused, saying he didn't want the insurrectionists to have the satisfaction of knowing they forced him to leave the Capitol. During that time, Pence directed the response response to the siege and checked on the safety of congressional leaders and members of the administration. And Jacobs said that he was frustrated that Trump didn't call to check on him. After four and a half hours, Pence went back to the Senate chamber and late that night certified the election for Joe Biden, just as the Constitution prescribes. Back with me, Olivia Troy, Daniel Goldman and Maya Wiley and Maya. Greg Jacob, who I thought was actually the most effective um, presenter today, said that after all of this happened, he emailed Eastman just to button up our Eastman conversation and said, thanks to your bullshit, we're now under siege. And Eastman, even after the insurrection, emails him back days and, and says to him, I implore you to consider one more relatively minor violation and adjourn for 10 days. Even as it's all hitting the fan, he's still begging him to violate the law. Yeah, he's begging him in words and writing and print. I mean, and he's a lawyer. <laughs> it just goes to tell you how brazen um, and how transparent John Eastman's efforts. But remember, it's his efforts that Donald Trump searched for, right? I mean, Donald Trump, what we've heard in prior days of testimony is Donald Trump didn't like what he was hearing from his campaign. He did not like what he was hearing from the Department of Justice. He did not like what he was hearing from Mike Pence's lawyers or from White House counsel. And so he went in search for and found the person who would tell him what he wanted to hear, what he was searching for, and the thing that enabled him to gin up the crowd. One point we should just add to the danger to Mike Pence that day, it was because the foot soldiers in this revolution were actually white supremacists and extremists that Roger Stone had been cultivating a relationship with since 2018, uh, who was actively engaged in the war room along with Steve Bannon, who at Breitbart did work to normalize and whitewash extremism and white supremacy. Uh, And that all of this culminates in the Proud Boys, and this was in testimony I'm afraid may have been missed a little bit, uh, uh, but the, the committee pulled this out, that before, before the speech that day, the Proud Boys were already scoping out the Capitol and entry points. And then we hear that they may have been within 40 feet of Michael Pence. Yeah. But what does that tell us about what's at stake in our Constitution? It's also about how we're driving racism and hate and violence. And I also, in addition to, to Greg, would add the Judge Ludig in stating this isn't about looking backwards at what happened. This is about looking forward to what will come if we do not interrupt it now. Indeed. And, and, you know, Olivia, I mean, look, Mike Pence calls it rubber room stuff, but it was also extremely dangerous stuff. I mean, to Maya's point, it's not as if the people around Trump didn't know who the Proud Boys were, because he, you know, they were the people he told to stand back and stand by. Roger Stone had lots of experience with them. These are extremist group, the three percenters, the Oath Keepers. They knew who these people were. And per the previous testimony that we've seen during these hearings, they were doing recon some people who made really violent threats were doing recon with members of Congress. 
who are taking them to places that people don't normally yeah. go on tours. So they had intel on where to find people. They knew who to find. And then they were siphoned off from the rally and sent to the Capitol with the mob then coming in behind them. I want to show a picture of this is Mike Pence looking at, at Trump. This is the, when Trump finally sends out a video telling everyone to go home. That's that's one picture that we can see of Mike Pence. And this is him sort of looking and sort of wistfully at that. And then you've got a picture of Pence moments after being evacuated. You can see him with his wife, Karen, his daughter and his brother, who, by the way, later voted to decertify the Pennsylvania election and voted against having an inquiry into his his brother's potential hanging. Mike Pence seemed to be the odd man out. Did he understand that Donald Trump was cultivating extremists around him? Did he have any sense of what Donald Trump was bringing his way, in your view? Yeah, like my personal opinion is that I think no one who has worked anywhere near Donald Trump in that circle, uh, it, it, it would be naive to go into this situation and not understand the gravity of what you're dealing with and who Donald Trump is. We've all lived it. Those are staff firsthand. We know what he's capable of. And so I'm sure that Mike Pence that day knew that he was going to incur the wrath, even though he was just doing the his constitutional duty. But to your point and to Maya's point, what is really alarming here is the extent of coordination yes. that went on amongst Eastmen, amongst all these entities, and with Trump, and with domestic extremist groups. Yep. And that coordination is ongoing, right? That is happening. Some of these people are running for office. Some of them are being installed in critical positions that could be very, very influential or possibly overturn future elections. And the threat lives on. The threat was to Mike Pence's life that day and to our country's leadership. But that threat still looms large in our communities. These divisions are being created every single day and they're getting larger. And it's all driven honestly, by what started off as this lie of a stolen election. And that stolen election narrative continues still today. And Republicans, I will say this, this is my own party, having been a lifelong Republican, continue to enable it. And what I'm hoping is that this hearing, these hearings, will maybe make a dent or make a crack in this whole MAGA foundation that's taken over the Republican Party and really get Americans to take a step back and say, enough. or We've got to start moving in a different direction because this is so fundamentally dangerous for all of us. I mean, yeah, I think this is a really important point, Dan, because, you know, you did have, you know, the Republican Party, you know, sort of mess around with the Tea Party and then they sort of became the baseline of the party. This is quite different. You know, this is the mainlining of extremist groups. The Proud Boys now control the Republican Party in Miami-Dade County. Dozens of people with this ideology, extremists, you know, Christian nationalists, et cetera, are now mainstreamed into the party. You know, play mob games, win mob prizes. The Republican Party is dancing with some extremely dangerous people in a bid to gain electoral power. Um, does that fact and that fact that the Justice Department must be aware of, how does that factor into these indictments? Because we know there are Proud Boys indicted. We know there are Oath Keepers indicted. Do they then make that connection to the political party that used them as foot soldiers? Well, I think that the the threats and the, the dissension into sort of this extremist, um, these extremist supporters 
comes from this continued anti-democratic fervor in the Republican Party. And I thought Judge Luttig at the end, the tail end, was asked again to just sort of sum up why he is so concerned about the future. But it was his first sentence in the statement today where he said, our democracy remains on a knife's edge. And that is exactly right. We are in an existential crisis right now about whether we're going to be a democracy going forward or whether we are going to allow for the cult of personality, the authoritarian dictator wannabe down in Mar-a-Lago to literally steal the next election. Olivia laid it out very well. That's what they're gearing up to do in 2024. The supporters unquestionably are this extremist. And that's part of the reason why the Department of Justice focused initially on the domestic violent extremists who were involved in the riot and the insurrection, because they are dangerous people who need to be removed from the street and they're charged with very serious crimes. So that is important. That's an important step. But you see this great replacement theory and all the Buffalo shooter and his anti-Semitic racist vitriol that led to the shooting. It is overtaking the Republican Party. And it's a combination. It's a toxic combination of extremism and authoritarianism that is driving this party and is why we are at such a breaking point. Indeed. And let's not forget the mob boss said that Mike Pence, his vice president, deserved to be hanged. Um, they're cultivating extremism right up to the top. Olivia Troy, Daniel Goldman, Maya Wiley, thank you all very much. Still ahead, another major January 6th development today. The committee wants to hear from Ginny Thomas about her emails with coup architect John Eastman, who once clerked for her husband, the Supreme Court Justice. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. There was an interesting plot twist before today's hearing started, and it comes from none other than a woman married to a sitting Supreme Court justice, Virginia Ginny Thomas. Now, we've known for some time that she was actively encouraging the the Trump plot to overturn the election. What we didn't know and have now come to find out, thanks to The Washington Post, is that she seemed to be having a conversation with John Eastman, the man responsible for giving Trump the dubious legal justification to steal the election. Today, the New York Times reported that in one of the emails with a pro-Trump lawyer, Eastman argues that there is a heated fight underway at the Supreme Court over whether to hear arguments about the president's efforts to overturn his his defeat at the polls. Here's a good time to point out that Justice Thomas was the lone dissent in the Supreme Court's order rejecting Trump's bid to withhold documents from the January 6th panel. Oh, and did I mention that Eastman once clerked for Justice Thomas? 
Eastman, who refused to cooperate with the committee, published the email in question. In it, you can see that Thomas was asking for an update on his coup attempt. In a statement today, Eastman said, quote, I can categorically confirm that at no time did I discuss with Mrs. Thomas or Justice Thomas any matters pending or likely to come before the court. So to recap, just how invested Jimmy, Jenny Thomas was in trying to overturn the election. Not only did she email Eastman, she reached out to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and to Arizona lawmakers. Today, January 6th committee chairman Benny Thompson told reporters that the committee wants to hear from Mrs. Thomas. Some information that refers to, to Jeannie Thomas, and uh, we think it's time that we would, uh, at some point, invite her to come talk to the committee. Later, he added that the committee has sent a letter to Mrs. Thomas. Thomas, who speaks only with right-wing media organizations, told the Daily Caller that she can't wait to clear up misconceptions. I look forward to talking to them. Join me now. Jill Weinbanks, former assistant Watergate special prosecutor and an MSNBC legal analyst, and Richard Painter, professor of law at the University of Minnesota and former chief White House ethics attorney in the George W. Bush administration. Jill Weinbanks, I'm going to start with you. Just three of the emails that uh, were sent to Mark Meadows by Jenny Thomas. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist in our history. To Mark Meadows, do not concede. It takes time for the army who is gathering for his back. And a third, can't see America swallowing the obvious fraud, just going with one more thing and no freaking consequences. The whole coup and now this, we cave to people wanting Biden to be anointed. Many of us can't continue the GOP charade. If you had Virginia Thomas in front of you on this committee, what would you want to ask her? I would want to ask her, all the questions about her full role, not just these emails to Eastman, not just her emails and texts to Mark Meadows, but I want to know more about her planning uh, possibilities. Did she participate in planning this? She certainly attended. She says she left because it was cold. Hmm. Not very believable to me, but, you know, maybe it's true. I certainly would want to know that. But I would want to know what she was talking about when the army assembling. What army was she talking about? How much did she know about the attempt to get into the Capitol before the actual breach of the Capitol? Those are things that I'd want to know. But I also want to know more about how she worked with Eastman, who was her husband's clerk. And this nonsense about, well, I live in a different world than my husband. We don't talk about things like this. Mm. That's just nonsense. And he has to recuse himself, which is a separate issue from her criminal culpability. So there is the criminal element of her role and then the terrible disservice that he is doing to the credibility of the Supreme Court by not recusing himself in all these cases. You know, and I mean, has to recuse, is doing a lot of work there because we know, Richard Painter, that there's almost no rules. The Supreme Court exists under a sort of rules-free environment. Clarence Thomas has said that they are essentially one being. They've been melded into one being. They work so closely together. Yet here he is being able to be the lone dissent on cases directly involving, you know, the, the distribution to the, the committee of emails that could concern his wife. Is there anything that Chief Justice Roberts could do? Is there any recourse with Clarence Thomas having the insurrectionist right there in his home. Well, there are rules. There's a federal statute requiring a federal judge or justice to recuse from the case in which his or her impartiality might reasonably be questioned. The problem is with the United States Supreme Court, there's nobody who enforce the rules or right. nobody who is apparently willing to enforce the rules. And that's why we need a code of ethics for the United States Supreme Court passed by Congress with a mechanism for enforcing those rules. 
Congress can enforce them through the impeachment clause. I will remind everyone that in 1968 or late 1960s, Justice Abe Fortas uh, was forced to leave the court and would have been impeached by the House and maybe convicted by the Senate because he took money from a party to a case before the court, apparently under pressure from his spouse. Well, perhaps Justice Porter should have known that the better route would simply be for his spouse to become a <laughs> consultant for the client. Sportis <laughs> recused from that case, and he was still forced off the court simply because of the money from a party before the court in the case before the court. Justice Thomas did not recuse from the Thompson case. He needed to recuse. He must have known that his wife was in the middle of this uh, contesting the election business. He must have known that. We don't know how much. We don't know whether he knew that she was talking uh, with Mr. Eastman. Uh, we will find that out when she testifies in front of the committee. I believe that Justice Thomas should testify in front of the committee, or at least in front of the Judiciary Committee, because the integrity of our courts is absolutely critical in the impartiality of our justices in a case such as this. And I mean, that would be a good question, whether, you know, Jill Weinbanks, whether they could call, whether the Judiciary Committee, the Senate Judiciary or House Judiciary Committee could separately call Justice Thomas. We know there's separation of powers issues here, but is that a possibility? Because it seems to me he lives in this accountability-free zone. Unfortunately, he does live in that accountability-free world. The possibility, of course, there's a possibility whether there is political will to do it and how long it would take while the court continues to suffer and whether Justice Roberts could in some way approach Justice Thomas and say, you're killing the court. You have to do something here. At this point, I don't think that recusal is enough. I think the damage that he has done and the politicization that is apparent from the relationship. And as I said, it's ridiculous to think that Justice Thomas doesn't know what Mrs. Thomas is doing or that Mrs. Thomas has no idea what the cases are for the Supreme Court. Right. We all know what the cases are. And she knows that her case was being decided by him and he was the lone dissenter. And the result of losing that case, of it being, he being the lone dissenter, is that we now have these extra documents that show her involvement with Eastman. Yeah. So I think it's so obvious that it was wrong of him not to recuse. Ridiculous. Some, some, I mean, there's so many things that are killing the credibility of the Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas is just one of them, but he's one of the biggest things. Uh, Jill Weinbanks, Richard Painter, thank you both very much. We'll be right, we'll be right back after this. On January 5th, 2021, Raphael Warnock became the first black Georgian elected to the United States Senate, alongside John Ossoff, who became the state's first Jewish senator, reflecting a political transformation fueled by the might of black voters and other voters of color. The very next day, a MAGA insurrectionist mob stormed the halls of Congress, driven by lies about election fraud. In a new essay, Senator Warnock reflected on these two crucial days in American history. Warnock wrote of his late father, quote, on January 5th, 2021, his youngest son was elected Georgia's first black United States senator and only the 11th in the nation's history. What would he think about the attack on the Capitol the very next day? Both say something profound about the America he knew and the one he always knew we could become. Joining me now is Senator Raphael Warnock, author of the new book, a Way Out of No Way, A Memoir of Truth, Transformation, and the New American Story, which I'm very excited to read. Um, Senator and Reverend Dr. Warnock, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate you. So t tell me, what do these two 
parallel events. What do they say about our country? Thank you so much, Joy. It's great to be here with you. Listen, every family has a complicated story, all of our families. And there are parts of our family story that we may not be eager to confront, but that's the only way healing comes. And uh, as you point out, uh, uh, I was elected on January 5th alongside John Ossoff, the state's first black senator and first Jewish senator, elected in one fell swoop by like to think that somewhere Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel are smiling because they marched alongside one another. And we, we came to the Senate on the wave of a multiracial coalition, I think the future of the country. Uh, then on January 6th, we saw this violent attack on the Capitol, driven by the big lie, and uh, the not-so-subtle premise that certain voices and votes don't count. You don't get to determine the future of the country. And so we're at this inflection point, and we've got to decide are we the America of January 5th or the America of January 6th? I choose January 5th. I choose what Dr. King called beloved community. And when I think about uh, my dad, who I mentioned, I talk about in that essay, born in 1917, a World War II veteran who was once asked to give up his seat to a white teenager while riding the bus in his uniform, but saw the, the arc of history in our country, I remain hopeful and we must all remain vigilant. Well, I mean, the, the reality is, is that January 5th in some ways caused January 6th, right? I mean, that reality that a state like Georgia in the South, uh, a state that historically has been, you know, a repository of racism, et cetera, and, and, and oppression produces this black and this Jewish senator because of the change in the vote. Like, that's what they were mad about, right? It's that new electorate that is capable of electing you and John Ossoff that people were so angry about. So, I mean, what do you what do you expect and hope to hear when two Republican members, you know, who are, are still elected officials in your state. Uh, Brad Raffensperger, who we know Donald Trump pressured to try to give him the election, and his deputy, Gabriel Sterling, they're going to testify to this same January 6th committee. What do you, uh, what do you, do you, do you think anything about what happened changed them and their perspective about politics? Well, I think uh, Georgia, in a real sense, uh, saved the country, gave the country a chance to fight and push towards its ideals. And as a kid who was born and raised in that state, I'm very proud of what the people of Georgia uh, did. Uh, we, again, have to remain vigilant. As I talk about my story in, in this memoir, A Way Out of No Way, which, by the way, is a phrase that comes out of the black church. It yep. is a phrase, as you know, God makes a way out of no way. It's born of struggle and it's, it's born of challenge and oppression. And yet keeping the faith, even in the midst of challenge, we have to keep the faith and we have to keep up the fight. And so I, I remain hopeful and um, I'm not about to give up on our democracy. And it's the most precious thing we can defend at a moment like this. Um, you and you, you speak about your faith. You, you do pastor the church, the church of the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think we have a picture um, that shows that Ebenezer Baptist Church. You still pay, you still preach at that church. Uh, you're still an active pastor. <laughs> do you recall what the first sermon is that you preached after the January 6th insurrection and what you said to your to uh that beautiful church. Yeah, I, I forgive me. I preach every Sunday, <laughs> but um, I, you know, it all kind of runs runs together after a while. But I, I, uh, I, I think I, I talked about this this tension, this creative tension that we live in, and both speak to uh, an important part of who we are. We can't pretend like January six isn't a part of us. It is. 
But the good news is so is January 5th. And uh, when I think about my own improbable journey, um, when I think not only about my dad, but my mom, who grew up in Waycross, Georgia, picking somebody else's cotton and tobacco, uh, those 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton and tobacco, picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. And yes, there, there are challenges. There are moments when the democracy expands. There are moments when it contracts. But even contractions uh, can give birth to new possibilities and a new world, and we have to fight for it. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, even though I hate to, th- uh, to, to, to have you have to even address it, but you are facing, what do you make of the fact that the voters on the other side of the aisle chose someone like Herschel Walker, who's a football legend. I used to you know, revere him as a football player, but given all of his challenges, his sort of pound cake speech version of what black men should be doing in terms of the home and the reality of his own situation vis-a-vis babies uh, and mamas, um, what do you make of that hypocrisy and the fact that he is who uh, Republicans think is fit to serve in the United States Senate and to remove you from the Senate? I think that in the midst of I think that in the midst of this campaign, uh, the people of Georgia have a real choice before them about who they think is ready to represent them in the United States Senate. I'm proud of my lifelong commitment to service and how I've translated that into the Senate and the work that we're doing uh, to fight for ordinary, hardworking families. That was very diplomatic. <laughs> you're a pastor, so that you, oh, man of God, that was very diplomatic. Uh, Senator Raphael Warnock, thank you very much. Congratulations on the book. Um, and special coverage for all of our audience cheers. And special coverage of today's dramatic hearing uh, is coming up next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.